This is Tess. And this is Travis. And you're listening to Disorder in the Court. We're back again. We did it. We, we made did it. it. It's been a little over a week, but mostly because we're going to try and get back on our regular Monday release schedule. I think that works better for everybody. Probably. Especially a lot having of the, pod- the set schedule, too. Yeah, a lot of the podcasts I listen to release like Monday or Tuesday, I think. It makes the most sense, and we'll have the most time to, to dedicate to actually doing it instead yeah. of having to rush, you know, and, and just throwing it together at the last second. Yeah. So this week, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about a weird court case where the main question is whether a burrito is a sandwich. Wow. One for the ages, really. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised it wasn't a hot dog. <laughs> That's next week. Don't worry. Okay, got it. And after that, I'm going to be talking about a Fox News case. Um, I know. Don't worry. <sighs> Widely heralded as a win for maybe more liberal people. And this is a very recent case, too, which we'll talk about in a second. Has a lot of far-reaching implications that go beyond the, the headline that goes with it. And I think that it's important to talk about. It might be a little bit more... Uh, I guess infuriating is the right word, then it originally lets on, so it should be interesting. All right. I'll go first, though. Okay. Right, so, McDougal v. Fox News Network, LLC, <clears throat> decided in the Southern District of New York, nearby. Um, and it was actually decided uh, in September of 2020, was the final ruling. So, just two, two months ago now. But... Yep, almost exactly two months ago now. This is a really <laughs> sort of not, I wouldn't say famous case because I don't know if a lot of people have heard it. It hasn't proliferated yet, right? Like it's not super popular yet. But I right. think there was a, like a lot of like Facebook news and headlines and stuff going around that like, oh, Tucker Carlson had to say that no one could take him seriously, that he wasn't news, that he was lying all the time. Right. And that's like most headlines, right? Like 1% of the actual truth. Of course, yeah. So I'm going to go through the underlying case, like when this arose, what happened, and then the, the the decision around it, right? Right. As we normally do, but I think it's important to see the, the progression of where it started to what actually occurred. So the underlying case was uh, about the, the plaintiff, Karen McDougal, uh, allegedly extorting $150,000 out of Donald Trump in exchange for keeping quiet at about about an alleged affair. Okay. Which, I mean, are we surprised at this no, point? No, not at all. I just don't... Now I'm I just... Don't, I understand what you were saying. Yeah. If I know what knew about what the case was about. Right, exactly. And obviously, because as it would, this case found its way to Fox News. Yeah, Shocking, of course. right? And specifically to Tucker Carlson's program. So, you know, being the world's angriest baby, Tucker dedicated almost an entire show to this case had guests on had entire segments about it you know like the graphics that show up all that kind of thing i have a big quote from the segment and it's important to talk about this it's long you gotta have to bear with me oh how dare you i know but just try to and for the people listening to try to digest line by line what i'm saying here and make a decision as to what you think is occurring (laughs) as i say this because McDougal argues a certain thing, which should be evident. Tucker Carlson argues a certain thing, and his lawyers argue a certain thing, which should be evident to any other person listening. 
But really what it comes down to is the interpretation of this following quote. Okay, you ready? Is this, a, this is a quote from Tucker Carlson. Yeah, he in, said it. In, okay. the, in the segment, yeah. Yeah. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, quote. We're going to start by stipulating that everything Michael Cohen has told the feds is absolutely true. Now, assuming honesty isn't always a wise idea with Michael Cohen, but for the sake of argument, let's do it in this case, everything he says is true, why is what Cohen is alleging a criminal offense? Remember the facts of the story. These are undisputed. Two women approached Donald Trump and threatened to ruin his career and humiliate his family if he doesn't give them money. Now, that sounds like a classic case of extortion, yet for whatever reason, Trump caves to it and he directs Michael Cohen to pay the ransom. Now, more than two years later, Trump is a felon for doing this. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Oh, but you're not a federal prosecutor on a political mission. If you were a federal prosecutor on a political mission, you would construe those extortion payments as a campaign contribution. You do this even though the money in question did not come from or go to Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Then you'd claim that Trump and Michael Cohen violated campaign finance law because they didn't publicly disclose these payments despite the fact that disclosing them would nullify the reason for making them in the first place, which was to keep the whole thing secret. End of quote. I know. Hello. It is a lot to digest. My name is Tess Gavin and I have a law degree and I do not understand what just happened. I, I think that's probably part of it like that's almost the point of having those run-on segments like that with like oh i'm making logical conclusion even though none of those things are related well you know it's interesting because i think you inadvertently hit on a point here that's integral to the reasoning of the case and that's that tucker carlson frames this and a lot of what he does in hypotheticals that sound very conclusory right which is to say he presents them with a a hypothetical disclaimer mm-hmm. and then presents them effectively as fact, even with the disclaimer in place. Right. And that's a big problem in this in, in the case here. So McDougal claimed that the quote that I just mentioned uh, effectively accused her of both extortion and blackmail. Right. Which led to harm by way of defamation. That was her claim. That right. She was defamed by these claims. Yeah, that, that tracks. It makes sense, right? And for those that are listening, defamation is a tort, meaning it's a civil civil wrong, right? So it's not like he's going to get arrested by the police or anything like that, but she could conceivably recover damages if she mm-hmm. proves certain things. And defamation has four elements, and mm-hmm. we're not going to talk about all of them, but one of them is, is important. The first is uh, the thing needs to be a false statement about the plaintiff, mm-hmm. in this case, McDougal. Second, it needs to be published to a third party, quote, without authorization or privilege, meaning they didn't have a right to publish it. Yeah. The third is it has to be published through the fault of at least negligence. Right. Could be reckless, could be something like that, at least negligence. Fourth, and finally, the publication of that false statement leads to special damages sustained by the plaintiff. Effectively, they were defamed. That's what defamation is. So in the case itself, the one that I'm talking about, McDougal, McDougal v. Fox News, there was some debate as to whether or not McDougal was a public figure because mm-hmm. she didn't hold public office. She wasn't necessarily a celebrity. Right. Like on, we talked about last week. Exactly. But on the other hand, she was accusing the president of defamation. So like a little bit of a public eye kind of thing. Right. That's a, a conversation for a different time because the court never actually gets to that point. Right. They decide instead they're going to focus on the veracity, uh, the believability of Tucker Carlson's language, his statements. 
So the thing that everyone focuses on, and rightfully so because it's kind of insane, is that Fox argues two things. First, that Tucker Carlson's language was not factual. It was just opinion-based. Sure. Which, which you can kind of understand because it's not like it was presented as like, you know, the six o'clock news. It was right. him interpreting something. And I can almost like I obviously hate Fox News, but you can almost see that because it's it's going through the lens of another person. Right. He's and conveying he's a, his opinion on facts. He's a personality too. people watch him for his opinions and his personality. Not necessarily because he's, he's the news, news anchor right. breaking news. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And and the court kind of agrees with that. It right. says that's makes sense to me. Yeah, it seems that the the judge in the case um almost refines Fox's arguments for them. And mm-hmm. this is this is the first real hurdle I have with this case. Mm-hmm. Um it's I'm angry about this for reasons that you might not expect at first. Fox says what I said, and mm-hmm. then the court is like, Oh yeah, that's a good start of an argument. Here, let me give you the rest of the argument for you. And then they eventually hold that mere words without proper context can't alone give rise to defamation. Right, because that's kind of where I was going with that. I was like, I buy that total thing, but I I then couldn't make the jump to how that makes him not liable for defamatory things that he says. It It was very strange. It was as if Fox did half of their reading for class yeah. and then the, the <laughs> Tumbled teacher through their like, cold okay, call uh-huh. and this and this um, we've we've all been there fox news i suppose so we've but i there. don't make you know millions or possibly billions of dollars i don't know what fox news is worth but yeah we give about 50 americans yeah. information <laughs> yeah exactly right um specifically the court holds that the statements were hyperbolic mm-hmm. they were an exaggeration mm-hmm. and not they didn't actually accuse mcdougall of a crime Okay. Instead, the court says, it actually makes, takes judicial notice of this, quote, it is apparent that Mr. Carlson is remarking on hypocrisy he perceives, i.e., that Mr. Cohen could be prosecuted and the president impeached for actions falling short of the conduct Miss Dougal purportedly engaged in during the president's campaign. Okay. Which, oddly enough, though that sentence makes sense, it seems entirely out of context relative to the argument that they just made. Right, because I don't... Well, if the if the statement is hyperbolic, if it's an exaggeration, then yeah. the context shouldn't matter. Well, and I just don't... Under, like, the he's not hyperbolizing on the what happened on the, like, or what is happening or is thought to happen on the Trump side. He is then only giving a hyperbole of what happened, like, what this woman supposedly did. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. It's it's, it's strange. That doesn't because, seem to lend itself to each other. Well, it seems that Fox's argument was that Tucker Carlson's conclusion itself was hyperbolic. Mm-hmm. That he wasn't saying this is actual extortion or actual blackmail. At the same time, the court says, "Well, we we take his statements to be what they are, but if you read them in context, then they could be considered hyperbole. And those seem like different arguments to me. Right. Those seem incongruous. Yeah, those seem like the two opposite sides of... And they, they're they both arguments, but it's weird that Fox makes one argument and the court says, yeah, you're right, this other argument. Yeah. Weird. Second, the second thing that the court does is that it holds that a series of decisions from courts around the country held... That similar accusations of extortion or blackmail, especially as related to political issues, are almost always construed as non-actionable. Effectively, okay. that that statements made by people like Tucker Carlson were per se not defamatory. Okay. 
because it's um, his job to yeah, f- effectively, do that. Yeah. Further, in light of this precedent and the context of Tucker Carlson Tonight, the show, the court finds that Mr. Carlson's invocation of extortion against Miss McDougal is non-actual hyperbole. This general tenor of the show should then inform a viewer that he is not stating actual facts, quote, about the topics he discusses and instead in, is engaging in exaggeration and non-literal commentary. Sure. So that's the thing that people get hung up on mm-hmm. is that Fox News had to say, oh, well, he's not being real. He's being right. non-literal. And we'll talk about why that matters in a second. And I understand why that's a soundbite, but that is not even close to the problem with this case. And it's certainly not the thing that people should take away from it. And that's, yeah, because that's kind of what I was going to say. That's also that statement from the court is super not what the soundbite is. Yeah. The soundbite, at least from what I've heard, is like Tucker Carlson spews nonsense to the point where Fox News was like, his show is nonsense. But what they're really saying is, He's not publishing news. He's publishing an opinion on news. I should be clear that Fox News and their argument, and I have a quote here somewhere. I'm sorry there's so many quotes this time around, but it's important because the entire case is based around quotes. So the quote that I have then is that Fox in their argument says that viewers should have, quote, an appropriate amount of skepticism about Tucker Carlson's statements. (laughs) Because of the way he acts and the things that he does. So, effectively, the soundbite that people are honing in on is that Fox News said their viewers are skeptical of some of the things that Carl, uh, Carlson says. So, I take that fully, and I fully think they should be. As the same with any, like, liberal, like, news person. Like, people watch, like, Rachel Maddow. Like, they do stories and opinions and, and things like that. Like, that's fine, but they're asserting that people or just some people that watch Fox News don't take every word out of his mouth seriously when I know for a fact there are a few if not a lot of people who quite literally take the words out of his mouth as truth. Right. So basically Fox News got away with saying what some viewers should do Mm -hmm. is come to the program with a certain amount of skepticism. Not right. believing every single thing that Tucker Carlson says. And that's what the headline focused and really over oversimplified, reduced down right. to. In the end, though, this case wasn't about Fox saying Tucker Carlson is, has a program of nonsense. Right. It was their way of saying the least responsible thing possible in order to get out of liability for this particular case. Right. And now all that they have to do was, because they said that, and because the court honed in on that particular piece, they never have to take accountability for saying something like that right. again. Right. They can just bring up this argument. And this is this is the biggest problem that I have with this case. I talked a little bit about the obstacles that I got to before. But the huge uh, damage that this case causes is that, regardless of your of your stance on freedom of speech... For the media, for individuals, and I—I I mean, I, we run a podcast. I'm big into freedom of speech <laughs> for the media. Yeah, but I have a huge problem with the fact that a court refused to analyze the content of the claim in the way it was said, and instead effectively gave Fox News a get out of jail free card. Yeah. If if a similar case comes up again where defamation is concerned, they could just say, "We already said." you know, we can't be taken seriously or 
viewers should have an element of skepticism when they watch our programs. They can say whatever they want effectively. And I have this written down. I think it's important is remember that quote at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Fox News argues and the court agrees that simply by stating the line, we're going to start by stipulating that everything Michael Cohen has told the feds is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. And assuming honesty isn't always a wise idea, but for the sake of argument, assuming it's true, by using those words, they can effectively insulate themselves from liability on anything else that comes after that. Which, that's kind of what stuck out to me as you were describing this, because keep coming to Tucker Carlson's defense a little bit and saying, like, okay, he's a, a news celebrity personality, he's not delivering breaking news, but the fact of the matter is that a lot of t people take his opinion very seriously, and I can see how easily it gets dangerous if all he has to say is, what, or all Fox News has to say is, well, like, you know, I just spout off on, like, what what's going on, and, like, hypothetically, and assume this, and he can get away from saying things that are actually more dangerous. Like, if he's saying this person, instead of, like, ex extorting Trump, is, like, threat on Trump's life. Right. And then people who take him seriously right. go and attack this person, and Fox News is just, Well, they couldn't sorry. have taken it seriously. They, they shouldn't have taken it seriously. But obviously, they did take it right. seriously. This, effectively, this case has very little consideration for the practical impacts of the ruling that it hands out. Right. It is a legal fiction just to say, this is how people should act. And if they don't, Fox News can't be responsible for it. Right. I have written here that the line after the one I just told you, Tucker Carlson says specifically, now that sounds like a classic case of extortion. Very conclusory. He also says, remember the facts of the story. These are undisputed. Right. Full, full on says that out. Very, yeah. very conclusory. But because he stipulated before that it was hypothetical, even though he wasn't actually being hypothetical, he's free from liability. And that's kind of the thing, too, with news generally today. But I think I'm not speaking out of turn saying particularly Fox News is weaving facts and opinion and presenting it all as factually true when really it's, you know, it could be factual, but it's very spun. And, like, I know that that's a problem with all media, but let's just acknowledge that Fox News does that regularly, especially in their TV programming. Right. And I mean, that's their argument here. And that's their argument here. And I think that that's a dangerous thing to say, like, per se, then there's no defamation because he was only saying half-truths. That's a whole element of defamation is that it's untrue. Right. <sighs> I think weird. they should have. they should have really... Like you said, like, they have this case and it seems like they thought about how they want the outcome in this case. I'm pretty fine with Tucker Carlson not having liability in this case, but it really doesn't seem like they thought about the ramifications and the decision that they were making on the law and not just the facts here. That's why this case is absolutely infuriating to me yeah. because I think a lot of people see this as a win for people who don't like Fox News. Right. Because they say, oh, they had to admit that they were a fake. Because it's a little bit funny. It is definitely a little bit funny. <laughs> the problem is Fox News gets off so easy. Yeah, it does make them get off easy. They only they only have to say, and this feeds right into their narrative, that like 
mainstream legal systems, judicial systems, other forms of media say, we're not real news, but you know and I know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that you should take what we say seriously. Right. Don't pay attention to all the other stuff. And now they have a legal way to get out of liability because of that. Right. I hate it. Big hate. It's not good. No, it's, it's not bad. Good. So, great. <laughs> I'm done. So on that note, um, I'm going to bear the burden of having our lighthearted case for the week. Get it right. <laughs> and I'm going to take us over to Massachusetts and specifically a shopping plaza with a Panera Bread inside. And Panera Bread? We have bread at home. <laughs> this is a, a shout out to my mom for making that joke every time ever I told her that I was going to Panera Bread as a high schooler. Very good joke. She's where I get my sense of humor from. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. No, I can see it. Yeah, that's that's it. So, yeah, so we're dealing with a, a Panera Bread. I don't know what level of knowledge people have about these things because I have none before law school. What, of Panera Bread? No, 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 no. <laughs> that was a segue into oh. my next bit. Okay, okay. sorry. When someone owns a plaza, they usually own the whole strip. I say plaza or like strip mall, strip mall or something yeah. like that. Um, they usually own the whole strip and then lease the individual stores out to the individual companies running the store. So Panera's lease agreement for this space in the strip mall, there was a clause that prevented the shopping center owners from leasing to any other sandwich shops. So... Okay. It's not common, but leases, like contracts, you can pretty much do whatever you want so long as it's not illegal or like unconscionable or anything like that. You mean you can contract into basically anything? Yeah. Right. And it and it binds the other person. If they, they sign it, they're bound by it usually. Basically, in this one, the owner agreed not to lease to any bakery or restaurant establishment that was expected to sell... Um, sandwiches as more than 10 percent of their income so panera really they wanted the whole market so specific on sandwiches though. yeah it gets a little bit specific as like lease terms normally do it also mentions that like they can't have a starbucks or a pete's there because those would violate right but that that's not exhaustive just examples um, but that, Can't have other coffee houses or cafes, right. basically. Okay. But that if they wanted to have a Near Eastern food business, what on earth? I don't. I don't know. I I really don't know. Or um, like sit down waitressing restaurants or a KFC Wait. allowed. Specifically KFC in yeah. the contract. Yeah, I don't know if there was like in this plaza there was a space that used to be a KFC or a Dunkin' Donuts or someone had determined that it could be a KFC or a Dunkin' Donuts, but they must have negotiated that those were allowed because of the space. I, I mean, don't know. Live your life, I guess. That's it seems weird, but it fine, is Panera weird. Bread. I mention it to to let you know kind of like like what this term actually encompasses right, okay. in the yeah, least. Fair enough. You know the the specifics of it don't really matter too much. So then the shopping center enters into negotiations and then eventually agrees on a lease to Cadoba, which if you don't know, Cadoba is uh, a place they sell burritos and bomb queso and it's like Chipotle but better. I was literally just going to say yep. that as a bit 
but I also agree with you. I Chipotle is trash. I will fight you on this all day, every day. Trash Chipotle. You don't have to fight me on it. That's I know fine. I don't have to fight you. You don't like Chipotle either, but they sell burritos and Mexican food, but at the same sort of level as Panera is like fast casual. Yeah, like, that's a good dining. way to put it. It's fast casual Mexican food. Yeah. Panera was uh, upset by this. And they... I can see where this is going. Yeah. So Panera was like, hey, um, you should stop that lease. Stop. They were, like, getting the building ready for Cadoba to move in. Um, you should stop that because that's a violation of our, like, exclusivity clause saying there, there can't be other sandwich shops. And the shopping center was like, what? This is a Mexican food establishment. And um, so basically the shopping center then filed an action... They sought declaratory judgment that they had not breached the lease with Panera by signing a lease with Kudoba. And declaratory judgment is exactly what it seems. They don't want any money. They don't want any damages. They just want the court to say that they're right and Panera is wrong. They want the court to declare something. Yes, Simple exactly. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Um, yeah. And so then Panera countersues and they want a preliminary injunction which we kind of talked about briefly last week, but same thing again. It basically is just right away they want the court to tell um, the breaching party, the breaching party, conceivably breaching party, right? So in this case, the shopping center to just like halt everything, stop moving Kadoba in, like this is going to harm us. Sure, and we're right. This turns the crux of this case into whether Kadoba is a sandwich shop selling sandwiches. And therefore, whether a burrito, taco, quesadilla should be considered a sandwich. Okay. I mean, that's fairly logical. Now, before we move on, Mm -hmm. I'm going to tender my guess. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, in my opinion, and I hope that the court agreed, Mm -hmm. a burrito is not a sandwich. So... We'll we'll get into it. I just want to um, say I want it for the okay, record you just right want it now. On the I want it on the record before okay, we get perfect. into it. I will, burrito, not a sandwich. I will get into it. So, you might be thinking if you haven't gone to law school, how will a court figure this out? Can a court even make this determination? Sorry, I went to law school and I'm still <laughs> still trying to guess how they're going to figure it out. Okay, so I'll tell you. Of course, they can make this determination. It's actually just contract interpretation, baby. Okay. So, fine. the same as if like you wrote a contract and you couldn't figure out what the parties meant by repairs. Okay. The court would just determine what you meant by repairs. Here, they're determining what you meant by sandwich. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. So the court has some general principles that this is... I'm going off of this jurisdiction, but from what we know about through law school, this is generally like what commonly is accepted in interpreting the contract. They try and get the provisions to be effective and they don't try and strike them out or anything. And they just want the contract to be reasonable and practical with regards to the expectations of the parties when they contracted. Okay. So, like, the parties obviously made this agreement, and they want to make it match as best as they can what they think the parties wanted when they entered into the agreement. Which makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's what a contract is for, so a court should enforce it as best they can in that regard. Right. First and foremost, they want to look to the words of the actual contract, which is why you'll hear from people like, oh, it's super important, like, the words you use when you're contracting. Like, make sure you, if you want it in the contract, you write it down. The, the words are important, and the court will look there. 
Um, probably if you have a major contract to do, just hire a lawyer. Like, just for real, just hire a lawyer. Like, if I was contracting something, I would hire a lawyer who specializes in contract. There's just no, there's no way that even myself, as someone with a doctorate and like experience in contract law, like I would never try and do it myself. Generally speaking, if you have something or are doing something that has legal implications, it's best to at least consult a lawyer. Yeah. Just saying. So in this jurisdiction, and like most, where the words of the contract are plain and free from any ambiguity, their meaning is their ordinary meaning. So effectively, if it's a clear, Mm -hmm. plain term, Mm -hmm. it's given the clear, plain meaning. Yes. Okay. But if the word is ambiguous, then the court can use outside sources to determine what the parties actually meant or were trying to get at. Okay. Here... The court concluded, but did not explain at all why, the term sandwiches was not at all ambiguous. So they said, sandwiches, everyone knows what that means, not ambiguous. It is just like a court to do something like that, honestly. Yes. And so the judge says, the plain meaning applies. Duh. Oh, okay. He writes in the Webster definition of sandwich and if this was, like, an English paper for a college class, he would have, like, opened with that. And yeah. Like, the Webster Dictionary Definition of Sandwich. But um, he writes it in, and he literally says, it's two thin pieces of bread, usually buttered, with a thin layer of meat, cheese, or savory mixture spread between them. Hang on. Let me know if that's what you thought the definition of a sandwich was going to be. No, and it, it excludes so many things. Yes. I don't know if you'd if you'd consider peanut butter savory. I think some people would. A peanut butter and jelly sandwich, not a sandwich. What about just a jelly sandwich? What about just anything? I'm I'm so confused by this. Also, second shout out, shout out to Carrie. Nutella sandwiches, she eats them all the time. Not savory. I don't know if this is a thing outside of like New England or Rhode Island specifically, but peanut butter and fluff. Yeah. I mean that's just marshmallow sure. and peanut butter. Yeah. That's so specific. Like. Not even considering a sub sandwich or yep. like a hoagie or whatever you call it in your region, which is sometimes just one bread cut yep. down the middle or something like that. Also, one of the articles I read mentioned club sandwiches have three layers right. of bread. Any double decker? Any double decker. Does grilling, like a grilled cheese, does that have something to do with it? I mean, that would be buttered, which is another insane buttered, requirement, right? by the way. I have never buttered a sandwich. Maybe the definition of buttered also includes spread condiments. But even still, like a ham and cheese without anything, like I don't know, maybe someone's allergic to like mayo or something like that. Just ham and cheese on bread is not a, whatever. I, I know this is weird. I know. So that's basically the things that people had problems with. Like, sure, okay, like taco burrito not included in that, but also now a hoagie is not included in that because that's just a roll split in the middle right. with meat in it. Um, yeah. It, Whatever. So strange. That to me is why I was like, okay, you said it's not ambiguous. How? This seems like the most ambiguous term to me. Well, it's it's clear in the fact that it's not what you would apply to every sandwich. Right. Like it is a clear definition that has been bastardized. I don't know if that's an inappropriate word. That has been bastardized a thousand times over and used Yeah. Weird. It's really weird. I, I know I keep saying weird, but like I cannot get past the fact that a court had to determine this and then went about determining it like that. Right. Like if I wrote a, a law school paper 
with that definition or with a similar definition applied to anything, I would not do well. Yeah. And this is, I'll talk about that in a minute too. So the judge also points to the fact that Panera drafted and negotiated this section of it. And usually if there's something wrong and the parties like didn't actually agree on something, it's construed against the drafter. So like he was kind of like, oh, and as a catch all like Panera, if you wanted burritos to be included in sandwiches, you should have just said so. Mm-hmm. Um, so all in all, the judge declines to stop Kidoba from entering the plaza because burritos are not sandwiches. Right. So that's fine. Whatever. I mean, I, that's how I would hope that the case yeah. ended up. And that's to me. I, to me, I was like, that. Yeah, that's fine. Burritos are not really sandwiches. Like, sure. I understand your like nuance argument, and like you could, I could absolutely sit there and argue the opposite side all day for fun, right. like devil's advocate. But like, I fine. That's yeah. all fine. But some law review articles and law journal articles talked about the greater implications of this case. And how it doesn't really take into an account the, like you were saying, the context or the full situation that this has occurred in. And how in this case, it's like silly because we're just talking about whether a burrito is a sandwich, but that's an actual like important thing for law and for judges to do. I mean, yeah, if it's going to have wide reaching precedent, you're defining a, a sandwich in a particular way. You're effectively enforcing a contractual term on a lot of other contracts. Yeah. And so even but even beyond like just the sandwich term, this really cool law journal article I'm going to like actually mention in here because it wasn't actually like bogged down in legal terms or anything at all. So like if you're at all interested in this, I recommend reading it. I literally you could just Google the woman's name. It's Marjorie Floristall and it's in the Michigan Journal of Race and Law. And she published this article. um, I think it's called Is a Burrito a Sandwich? Question mark. Great. Perfectly. And it basically talks about how cultural definitions and like cultural context specifically is left out when judges apply something called primitive formalism which is basically when you treat the law as super formal and rigid and he says obviously we have a dictionary definition for sandwich so it's unambiguous and that's what we apply but how when you do that you then lack the capacity to allow change or subtlety or complexity in the law and in your decisions. And so, again, with the sandwich, it doesn't really matter. But if you don't allow complexity and cases to turn on nuance of the facts specifically and you stop your analysis at just what that says specifically, that's really kind of problematic and especially in this case he said he decided it on common sense or his gut and that's not at least to me and to the the author of this article that's not enough when you're looking at the law it doesn't get the whole picture it misses completely the logical and deliberate reasoning that comes with a fully informed and thorough assessment And that's, like, her quote. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, how can the judge be so sure of himself and his gut, but not even explain why it's not 
ambiguous and exclude all cultural or logical reasoning. And kind of what she points to this is like, even though it doesn't fit within the dictionary definition of a sandwich, there's a lot of similarities between a sandwich and a burrito that don't even get talked about because he just went with this gut, duh, it's not a sandwich. Yeah, I think, I think too, to me, the idea that this judge made the decision based on his gut seems entirely, A, antithetical to formalism to begin with, because he's effectively saying, I'm not going to look at the formalism of the law. I'm not going to look at what the words are. I'm just going to, in my opinion, this is common sense. This is what it should be. And not only does that rob the words of the power that they should be given in the original law, but it also, like you said, eliminates, uh, you know, changing of that law because you're not basing your decision in any sort of logic or reasoning or any kind of uh, argument that's been made in the past, any precedent. Like, if you're just pulling an argument out of thin air, then what are you basing this on? And mm-hmm. what gives you the power to make a decision not based on the law but on your gut? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense to me. In addition to that, and I'm sorry if this is a little bit late, but it's it's so strange to me that a judge would say this decision is based on the dictionary definition of something mm-hmm. instead of the law or a, pres- a case precedent or something like that because you're effectively taking – a legal decision out of the legal system and giving it to some random person who wrote the def- definition right, of a the sandwich plain definition. 200 years ago. Yeah. It's not, it. that definition doesn't jive anymore. It's like, it doesn't fit with modern context. It has nothing to do with legal formalism. It has nothing to do with legality at all. And you're basing an entire case justice on an outdated and unelected, unlegal definition of something. Right. Com- completely broken, in my right. opinion. So that's kind of where I wanted to go with it, too, because, like, obviously this case is the most low stakes. Like, I literally could not care less right. whether Kidoba is allowed to be in this plaza in Massachusetts. They're they're both giant corporations. They could go anywhere, do yeah. anything. I do not care. But where in other places where we can see the impact or perhaps where people's rights are at issue, it, it's so antithetical and seems so important that you would need to take the culture or the class or the race of people or the time period the time period any culture. context into account so there was one example of flesh-colored band-aids and crayons like common sense years ago if someone asked you oh what color is like a flesh-colored band-aid you'd say like the tan the beige but we know now and we had to be like opened up to the fact for Which is some it, reason yeah, insane in and of itself right? that that's not flesh colored we just all accepted that as like the duh answer like duh that's what flesh color is that's just not true right and now now we know and we also know that not seeing yourself represented it, like scientific studies have shown that not seeing yourself represented is detrimental to development. So then with this, like, even though it seems so funny and crazy, like, that's why I was kind of like shocked to see law review article about it. But once I read it, I was like, you're right, that makes complete sense. And the other thing too, that stuck out to me that no one really talked about, it's the same thing to me with like, when courts and when laws get it wrong and we have to go back in reverse if you don't think about context with that and you just give it the formal thing like what we've always done or what the law says you will continue to get it wrong there's no 
growth. So, like, I thought about, like, especially with, like, the three-fifths compromise, if you would ask somebody at that time whether black people, whether people of color were the same people as white people, they would have said, duh, no, like, look at these laws, look at our culture, like, whatever. But we know now that that's not the case. If you just went rigidly on that, we would have, we would never grow and progress. Like, you, I just don't understand how you can just not consider the context of that. I understand taking precedent into account when you're making a decision Mm-hmm. That has ramifications for the future. Sure. That said, if you have a case and you decide not to put context of facts and, you know, new develop new cultural development, sociological nuance. developments, nuance or anything like that into your decision, then there's no point in hearing that case. Just apply the law as it is. So to me, and I think this is basically what you were saying, like we have the Civil War amendments, 13, 14, and 15 were literally, they're part of the Constitution now, mm-hmm. weren't there originally. It's a its a fallacy. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's called appeal to ancient knowledge. And basically yep. it's everything that is old is important and should be revered and shouldn't be questioned. Mm-hmm. And in reality, and in my opinion, the law can't be that. To me, the takeaway from this case then isn't, as, as funny as it is, isn't whether a burrito is a sandwich, but is whether or not the law needs to evolve regularly as society does. And I think beyond evolving, too, what I take away from this case is it's not enough to strictly look at what you were given definition-wise, precedent-wise, anything. It is your job as someone who's even not even just a judge or a lawyer as someone who's thinking critically about legal issues at all at any level it is your job to consider all of the context all of the precedent all of the the standard definitions all the legal definitions and do an analysis on those and why people are so mad about this case is that the judge simply chose not to yeah. and said this is so simple i don't need any analysis i don't need any application and everyone else is just saying that's wrong and even though it doesn't matter here it matters everywhere else i think that's a better takeaway actually not that the law needs to evolve which it does it does need to but maybe the fact that even when law appears to be straightforward, mm-hmm. you need to figure out how it applies in in new situations. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. It's also bad. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Take a hard stance on that. Bad. It's bad. That's it for this week. I Sorry I got, you know, uh, morose, serious this time around. It was definitely not as funny this week. Um, so this week was a monday release hopefully we're gonna stay on that monday schedule i'm not exactly sure who knows what's going on uh this week is gonna be a dumpster fire anyway so who knows i forgot about that yeah two days sort of dating this a little bit but two days yeah but you know keep listening too yeah who cares we'll do our best or don't (laughs) i appreciate if you did but like also (laughs) if you don't want to that's also fine too i'm not gonna force anybody to do it Also, tell a friend about it. Tell two friends about it. 
I won't or, force you to listen, but I'll force you to tell two friends about or it. Or tell two friends about it. Um, you can, like, do a nice little post on Instagram and tag us in it, at Disorder in the Court Pod, and then that would be cool. Um, you could tweet about us. You could tweet about us and tag us at Disorder Pod. You could CC us on the email that you send your friends about the podcast at Disorder in the Court Pod at gmail.com. Or, and I'm sorry I have to spring this on you, you could write Disorder in the Court on a small slip of paper and tie it to the foot of a crow. And just send it into into the city or wherever you live. Mm-hmm. And then eventually someone will find it. Mm-hmm. And they'll Google it. You mm-hmm. know, like, this is crazy. This is like a sign. Mm-hmm. And then they'll find us. And then they'll listen to it. I mean, hopefully they'll find us. I don't know what happens when you Google that. But I don't think. Well, we'll find I think out, you I get guess. Like, I think you get like a Three Stooges. I think it was an episode yeah. called Disorder in the Court or something yeah. like that, if I remember correctly. But maybe our Instagram or our Spotify will come up. I mean, it will eventually. Once they get to, like, the third page of the Google results, we're good. <laughs> we own that third page. No. <laughs> I have no idea. I have, again, third shout-out. This time, second shout-out for Carrie. Carrie and Taylor, they both work in, like, marketing, internet marketing, email marketing sort of, like, things. And um, they talk about it sometimes to each other in the group chat that I'm in with both of them. And it is, like, whoosh. Right over your head. Right over my head. I have literally no idea what's we, going on. We have not mastered SEO yet. No, not even a little bit. Search engine optimization. optimization. Nailed it. Great job. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever. I'm not going to take this thing too seriously for now. But tell, tell somebody about it. If you want to. If you want to. What you should do. I changed my mind. Not the crow thing. Uh-huh. Email the McElroys. Yes. If you listen to them, tell them about this podcast And don't tell them to listen to us or shout us out. Tell them that we're coming for them. (laughs) And eventually when that gets to them, they'll... They'll know. No. Yeah. They'll know. They'll know. They'll know about it. Yeah. I've made it a point now to call out the McElroys at the end of every episode in the hopes that, like, episode 35, Mm -hmm. if we make it that far, they're like, it finally makes it to them and they're like, this is insane. They've been calling us out for... 27 odd episodes listen this is precedent at this point because one the McElroys manifested themselves into the trolls movie and that's true and two i'm pretty sure someone manifested the McElroys onto their own podcast that i think might have been called the McElroys will be on this podcast or something like that that is a brilliant marketing play right so i'm putting the same sort of energy into this because even though sorry what was the message for them we're coming for you um even though we're coming for them you i love you guys yeah fair maybe i should just start doing that with all famous podcasters at the end just calling people out out. and if like eventually it's like a dartboard eventually something will hit maybe is that how a dartboard works if you know any famous podcasters who might want to be on our podcast that said, if they know famous podcasters, they probably aren't listening to our podcast. You, you never know. know, but it's possible. You never know. Did your computer just beep at me? It did. That's it. That's all. Bye. Bye.